This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Jeff Hickman and David Moskowitz are no strangers to Wild Steelhead. Jeff is a longtime steelhead guide, lodge owner, and advocate. His passion for protecting wild species and places consistently take priority over financial gain, making him one of the most trusted voices in the fishing industry. David Moskowitz is executive director of the Conservation Angler. He has held leadership positions at several other fishery conservation organizations and studied environmental law and policy at Lewis and Clark Law School. In this episode of Anchored, we sit down to discuss the current state of Columbia River Steelhead, navigating management, and Jeff's decision to stop guiding in protest. All right, so this is a... This podcast is not one I was looking forward to, if I'm being honest. And it's not that I don't want to see either of you guys. I'm sitting here right now with Jeff Hickman and David Moskowitz. But it's the subject that we're discussing. Usually on the show, we talk about fun things like your lives and all the wonderful accomplishments that you've had in life. But today we're talking about steelhead stocks, which unfortunately we've kind of seen this coming over the last few years and it's all funneled down into today's conversation. So without me taking over the the subject, because I have a lot to learn right now, I'm going to hand the mic to you, Jeff. And um, before you do let us know what's happening over there, can you just give us your bio, who you are and what you do in the industry? Yeah, I'm Jeff Hickman. Uh, my company is called Fish the Swing. I uh, grew up in Oregon as a steelhead fly fisherman. So I've been pretty immersed in the steelhead fly fishing culture for the last 30 years. That is my identity. Like that's 
my entire life has been steelhead focused. I've been a full-time fly fishing guide for 20 years now. I think, I think I'm coming up on 21 years. And 14 years ago, I began guiding the Deschutes River, which was kind of a river waters that I grew up fishing. I began guiding that with a power boat from the mouth up on the Deschutes, uh, which is a roadless section. I think my perspective is on the water. I mean, I would guide somewhere upwards close to 300 days a year and entirely steelhead focused uh, guiding businesses. And, and kind of that, uh, that led to eventually purchasing a lodge in British Columbia on the Dean river. Um, and I think, uh, I think Dave would do a much better job at kind of kicking off, you know, the, the state of current events. I think I just wanted to at least introduce myself and my history and my perspective on this issue that's come to a head here. Dave, what's, uh, what's your story? Who are you? And, and let's talk a little bit about the organization. Okay, great. Uh, Dave Moskowitz here, and I'm in Portland, Oregon, uh, where I've actually been living for 34 years. I came out here to go to law school at Lewis and Clark in 1987, spent my very first weekend in Oregon, actually on the Deschutes River. And though it was a little while before I actually hooked my first fish there, it was, uh, just that love, that desert uh, climate and the, and the amazing canyons. And I went to law school for a couple of years and I've been working on fish and river conservation uh, uh, while I was in law school. And uh, since I got out of law school for a number of conservation groups, I actually worked for the National Marine Fisheries Service and another government agency as well. And I've been a lobbyist. So the fish have kind of been my client uh, for a long time. It's been a uphill battle. And we are in a state now where it, it just feels it feels sad and uh, and disappointed uh, in terms of what uh, what got us to this place. But that is what I guess is it, it makes it feel a little bit sad. But it's also, uh, you know, still have been my life. I haven't made a living necessarily uh, fishing for them by any means, but it is. It is the thing my life is organized around. And uh, and I know that that's true for Jeff and so many other people. And that that's that's at risk right now, the whole culture, the animal itself. And uh, I've been working for the Conservation Angler since 2016. It's a group that was founded by Pete Zavrol in 2003. And uh, I've been executive director since I started. And uh, our focus is on hatchery and harvest management which we think are critical issues to restoring wild fish uh, across the Pacific Northwest and all the way to Russia. And uh, so we have a pretty wide swath. We're a small group, and we try to be really focused. Before we really dive into exactly what's happening, I just want to bring it back to Jeff for a second, because Jeff, I think that you would find this quite interesting. I am currently stuck in Australia, because of COVID right now, I can't get back home to Canada. And look, I knew that the Skeena stocks were poor because my brother-in-law is also a guide up there. And he was telling me about, uh, Stevie was telling me that the Skeena is suffering. But I had mentioned to my husband, hey, listen, stocks are really bad this year. And he said, yeah, I saw Hickman on Facebook 
just announced the closure of his season. And I said, funny enough, I'm actually talking to him about this right now. So just your Facebook post is already reaching people down here. And I just want to give the listener some context. Jeff recently announced, and, and we will dive more into this later and, and the specifics about this later, but Jeff announced recently that he's shutting down his entire guide season because of the low steelhead numbers. And from what I understand, Jeff, it's not mandatory yet. Is that right? The, the state hasn't closed the rivers yet. This is a, a personal and ethical decision that you've made. Yeah, I think you just identified it there. I'm not necessarily canceling my season because of the low numbers. I'm canceling my season in protest of inaction of the managers. So I'm speaking specifically about ODF and W and WDF and W seemingly doing nothing as we are watching steelhead vanish before our eyes. I mean, this is unprecedented. This is the lowest steelhead run in history. And these are not extrap. This is not extrapolated data. These are hard numbers that are counted at the Columbia River dams. You can't ignore those numbers, and it's really, really frustrating to see this happening. Who wants to dive into explaining some of the background here and the policy and all of the, all of the nitty gritty that's never fun to talk about, but that we need to discuss. I think that there's lots of estimates of how, how many steelhead used to be coming out of the Columbia Basin, but it's largely believed to be the center of the steelhead world in terms of the number of different stocks. It's right in the middle of the range, and it was truly the uh, the engine for, for wild steelhead. And you take that forward when Lewis, from the time Lewis and Clark came, and steelhead supported um, vast tribal cultures in the upper watersheds where there weren't salmon very often sometimes, but there were always steelhead. And you take that forward to when they actually were listed as a threatened species under the Federal Endangered Species Act. That was that listing took place in 1997. And that year, by this date in August in 1997, there were 27,000 wild steelhead past Bonneville. Here we are in 2021. There aren't even 27,000 total steelhead past Bonneville on this date. And that's the depth of loss that we're looking at. This run is 22% of the, of the average number over the past 10 years, which is the lowest on record. So it's a terrible measure. When you compare it against the most abundant periods, we're talking about 10% of the run, 10% total, and that's hatchery and wild. Wow. And I know Stevie had mentioned that it was 25, or the estimates for the Skeena this year are 25% of what they were last year, which was already a dismal run. So what is the blame here? Is this an ocean survival thing? Well, it's 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 oh, it's rarely just one thing. And ocean ocean issues definitely. Uh, you'll hear the managers talk about that all the time. You know, there's some pretty abundant salmon coming back this year. All the runs are low though, but the steelhead go to a lot of different places in the ocean. They definitely don't just do a sort of a northward migration to the uh, Gulf of Alaska. They're going out across the North Pacific, and and we are seeing evidence that. Huge hatchery releases from Japan and Russia, 
and, and Alaska for pink salmon and chum that are really just decimating the food chain. But it's not just the hatchery fish. It's also we're seeing the effects of climate change because we're seeing different temperatures. We're seeing different gyres. We're seeing different currents. The food web is totally disrupted. And so these steelhead are going out into the ocean just facing – they're seeing a uh, uh, basically a overgrazed pasture. Uh, and that is having a big effect. And it's f- affecting the hatchery steelhead probably more than the wild steelhead. But it's definitely affecting steelhead overall. And that's why we're seeing these coast-wide declines of summer steelhead. Death by a thousand cuts. That's right. I think it's easy to pass blame off to some unknown, like it's ocean conditions. But everything has an impact, and it's death by a thousand cuts. Yeah, that that's absolutely true. And And the steelhead are so diverse. They go to so many rivers. They come in over such a long period of time. Since they're not going to die after they spawn... Uh, they take their time getting to their spawning grounds. They meander all over the place, which is the beauty. It's why you encounter Idaho fish in Oregon rivers uh, and practically vice versa. They're just the traveler, the, the traveler of the anadromous fish world. And the management, the management isn't set up to accommodate this incredibly diverse wild creature. Uh, and so all the steelhead fisheries are really an annoyance to trying to set salmon seasons. And it, it is, that's a big part of what this is. So death by a thousand cuts, Jeff, did you see yourself as one of those thousand cuts? Yeah, I think, you know, I, you know, I, I hinted at this is like, we all have an impact, right? And yeah, it's easy to, to say, you know, me as a, a guide, fly fishing guide, who's catch and release only handling the fish with minimal impact, always keeping them wet, uh, you know, fighting the fish fast, using floating lines when, whenever possible and fishing dry flies, encouraging people to, to try to catch them in the, in the hardest, most difficult ways possible. Right. We get out and we wait and we, and we and we swing flies. Right. But we still have an impact. We're still catching fish. We still are out there participating in the fishery. Right. And so if we all just say, oh, well, I don't have an impact. I mean, compared to a gillnet, I don't have an impact. I'm acknowledging that we do have an impact. So, yes, I, I do see us as, you know, in my whole life, I've always kind of subscribed to the ethos of you're either part of the problem or you're part of the solution. And if, uh, you know, I, I never knew what the threshold was, but man, if like, if you're not going to stand up, and say something right now, what's it going to take? When will you stand up and say something? Because this is this is unprecedented. Yeah, reading your message on your homepage of your website, which was an excellent message, by the way, uh, spoke volumes when, you know, you said, we d- we've always said that we would stop if we had to. And if this isn't the time, then when is? So wh- what's your message? I mean, a protest is a big, it's a big deal. And especially, you know, the word protest, it carries a lot of weight. So what are you hoping to achieve with this? And my second part of that question is, what is your message to fellow guides? I mean, I, most lots of your friends are are also fishing guides and outfitters. Yes, hundred percent. And I, I didn't mean to alienate anyone at all. Other guides, uh, you know, everybody has their own set of problems and their own their own thoughts on everything. Um, I can control my own actions. I don't want to tell anybody what to do. Um, this is really, this is just how I am responding to the trauma of witnessing steelhead not returning. You know, this is what I had to do for myself. 
Um, and ultimately, what I'd love to see is some meaningful management put into place, some metrics put into place. I would love for these managing agencies to tell us that it's not safe to fish or that it is safe to fish. But I have zero faith that they that they are even caring about it. So, you know, I, we've we've kind of suggested some management changes. I think at a bare minimum, I would love to see every cold water refuge area on the Columbia, both on the Washington and Oregon sides, protected, you know, have that kind of marine sanctuary model applied to the rivers. You know, these fish, the, the waters are lethal temperatures. The fish are, you know, forced to crowd into these cold water areas where tributaries flow in. And it really, it's, it's unethical fishing because the fish need to be there for their survival. And yet there's zero protection for them from the agencies. People are just left to manage themselves, which I don't trust people to manage themselves. So that at a bare minimum, protect the cold water refuge areas, remove all gill nets. Uh, the, the Oregon fish commission opened a commercial fishing season in the main stem Columbia. So we have gill nets, both tribal and commercial. Um, gill nets do not have any selective methods. They kill every fish that gets entangled in them. You know, we have, we have, uh, you know, safer, selective fishing methods. And it, there's just no excuse to be using gill nets in this day and age. Those are things I would love to see. Um, and I think the only way we're going to get the attention of these agencies, if it's a lot of guides, a good number of guides and outfitters and people that rely on this resource and this fishing for their, their livelihoods, you know, I mean, I, it's easy if it's just me to be brushed aside, like I'm some crazy extremist or you know, who knows what false narrative people can make about me. But the truth is I'm living in a trailer. We're renting our house out. I have a five-year-old kid. I don't have a savings account. I have no idea what we're going to do. I want to make that very clear because I know there are people who listened and immediately assumed that you're just living off of some other money stash somewhere. You are literally sitting in a trailer right now. Yes. Because, and not that, the, I mean, I just, when you said I'm living in a trailer, I said, awesome, I'm jealous, but they're rent. You guys are renting at your house to pay bills. I mean, yeah, I have a house I can't afford to live in. I'm renting it. Like I don't, we don't have some other option teed up. People think, oh, I have these fancy lodges in British Columbia. I have debt against those lodges. I pay interest on those loans. I'm very fortunate for what I have and what I've experienced in my life. But financial security is not one of those things. Mm-hmm. So, David, just from a policy stance and and understanding how all of this works in the boardrooms, is does this all just sound like wishful thinking, or is this possible? Well, I think I think it definitely is possible. I think that we can we can have a management framework that is really modeled after the the, the diversity of these wild fish. And right now, we we have an agency that essentially is it's captured by a big part of their budget is from anglers buying licenses and they have when the when the agency has to say boy things don't look good people don't buy their licenses their revenues go down uh it has it does have impact on their ability to get certain work done we need to change that model the north american model of wildlife conservation it needs to be changed because that it's based on anglers and hunters paying for the management of these animals we're trying to protect and 
the, the first word should be conservation. And there needs to be an investment by every citizen into these agency budgets so that they can make a conservation-oriented decision that is looking towards the future, that applies the precautionary principle, that gives, gives some credence to the uncertainty. Because we are, we're talking about wild animals that we don't know that much about. So there, there are things that can be done. Jeff listed a whole bunch of them, and the cold water refugia is a critical one. I want to point out that Oregon actually has designated three of those at Eagle Creek, Herman Creek, and the Deschutes. And that was done in 2020 after a number of years of advocacy for that. Um, Washington has failed to designate those. And they have most of the cold water refuges in the Columbia between the mouth of Columbia and the Snake River are on the Washington side. And they have done they've only they've just recently took a small action at one of those. But people are fishing there every day. And I think that it's really important. All and Jeff pointed this out. All of us will often point to other people, point to the the non-tribal commercial gill netters in the lower Columbia River. Uh, We'll point to the tribal commercial fisheries. Fly fishermen will point at deer fishermen and vice versa. But as as Jeff mentioned, you know, those tributary fisheries, they, they need to be looked at carefully because everybody is, there's people fishing there right now and they're going to be fishing there every day until November or December. And in, in Idaho and in far Eastern Oregon, they'll be sport fishing for steelhead into April. These fish that are coming back, and there's, what, 28,000 of them right now? These are the, the, the badass, super competitive, top-of-the-line creature in that species that have made it out of the Columbia River, made it through the estuary, made it through the North Pacific, and now they're back. These fish need every opportunity to be able to spawn successfully because we don't know, with only 30,000 fish, that are predicted 35,000 fish in the whole Columbia Basin, you're talking about localized extinction in creeks like Lolo Creek, Bake Oven Creek. You're talking about not enough fish to seed the environment. These fish may not even find each other. There's so few of them. We've got to do something to turn that around, and it has to start with us, and that's why Jeff's decision uh, is so significant. In the relationships I have and knowing the people I know between government and really the guide industry, the people I know in management would be delighted to have all the guides stop guiding. Is is that something that may be a fair representation in Oregon or do does management want to see the guiding operations thrive? I, I don't know if I... If there's an answer to that, I, I, I feel like the, uh, the the agency does utilize uh, what they call advisory committees, and oftentimes there are guides on those. And I know that the Columbia River Recreational Advisory Committee, it's mostly, it's all, you know, big boat guides that are on that and recreational anglers that are boat anglers. So they really focus in on the, the main stem Columbia River fishery. And I think that that fishery, to be honest with you, this year is constrained pretty conservatively. It's not perfect. It could be better. But what's not been nothing, what's, what not, has not happened is really taking a really clear-eyed look at the tributaries. And that is where... Uh, that is where the conservation gains could be made this year. Uh, and we need to do that this year because the number is so low. Yeah, I'd like, I'd like to point out that, yeah, we, we are under 30,000 steelhead so far over Bonneville. And uh, we are under 
under 10,000 total steelhead over the next dam up, the Dalles Dam. So, you know, there's there's roughly 20,000 steelhead sitting in that reservoir where, all, where a good number of those cold water refuge areas are. And uh, what Dave was mentioning, the, the recent limited protection we had in Washington was the announced no fishing from a floating device inside of Drano Lake. Yeah, you could still fish from a floating device. You could fish from a boat outside of the bridge in the Columbia in the cold in the cold water plume of the Little White Salmon River, and you can still fish from shore inside Drano Lake. And I, the other thing I did want to point out about the Oregon uh, with their cold water refuge area strategy is all of those cold water refuge areas are opened up on September sixteenth, and from my experience, the mouth of the Deschutes is one of those areas. And on September 16th, it is a bloodbath. It's the most disgusting display of fishing ethics you've ever seen in your life. Because everybody knows that those fish have been rested all summer. And all those fish that we're holding there from July, August, and the first half of September don't know that the fishery is opened that morning of September 16th when the, when the sun comes up. And everyone and their cousins... And their moms and their grandmas, they're all out there with their lawn chairs, fish and bait, and they catch every fish that is in that plume. And that refuge area in the summertime does not include all of all of the plume of the Deschutes water. It's not big enough, in my opinion. So it needs to be closed permanently to provide any, any little bit of protection for those ESA-listed fish. These are endangered species, and I don't think I haven't heard of Alaska opening any up any polar bear hunts, issuing any tags. Right, it's the same thing. These are endangered species. Stop pretending like we want to protect them and actually protect them. Is there any conversation around that, David? Is there any discussion happening with that? Because that yeah, date is coming it is. soon. And, uh, our organization and, and the and organizations that we have been working with uh, since this since the slow return really came to light the late July, and that includes really good groups like the Native Fish Society, and Trout Unlimited, Wild Salmon Center, Wild Steelhead Coalition, uh, Wild Fish Conservancy. There's six groups, and uh, and we have we have advanced a number of recommendations to the agencies. And it's been, uh, there's been uh, virtually no communication about those. There is a meeting that's scheduled to happen on Friday morning from 10 to, 10 to noon Pacific time. It, there's not going to be uh, the ability to testify there. They will take public comment through a, a website link. Uh, we can get all that stuff to you. But the staff is going to present the their assessment of the situation, and they may present a set of uh a set of actions that could be taken in addition. But the, what Jeff is talking about on the Deschutes, those are those are two really important ones. One is the date. It should be extended out. At the minimum, it should be extended out to the end of October. And uh, the other thing is that there's fully 25% of that cold water plume is, is open to angling. So uh, those are key opportunities for the agencies to take action. I think that's the thing that is so difficult here. There's such a lack of leadership that the sort of the moral high ground, the ethical quandary is being borne by anglers and, and guides. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it shouldn't be that way. 
The agencies should be leading the way. They should be using the precautionary principle. And and they and we should be thinking about the future generations. One of the things that I like about you, Jeff, is that you never have seemed to have had a problem with taking a controversial ish subject or issue and just leading the charge. You seem to, you know, accept that people aren't always going to like it or like you for it. And you set your mind on what you feel is right and you move ahead. So I would love to know how you've been handling the conversation with fellow guides. What was the response when you posted that on Facebook? Uh, so far I've had, uh, not a lot of, uh, I haven't heard from any of them. So my phone is pub. My phone number is public. And as it turns out, I'm available now and in reception and able to field anyone's calls and would love to chat with every one of them. Like I said, I don't, I don't want to tell anybody what to do. Uh, you know, I just want to make my own decisions. And my hope was that me sticking my neck out and it's, and it's not just my neck. We have a staff, we have employees, uh, our other guy, Barrett Ames, he just had a baby girl, you know, he just moved out to the upper hood river Valley to commit to guiding the Deschutes. So this is a huge blow, not just to me, but to, to all of our staff. And, uh, you know, and we, and we, you know, we have a lot of uh, support staff also, people that were, you know, this is, this is our income. This is, you know, this, this fall season of our Deschutes base camp where we, we run six clients nonstop basically for two months straight back to back. Um, I was just telling it up. It's 84, 84 different clients that are, that are all buying Oregon fishing licenses. Many of them are from out of state traveling to the area. Um, you know, driving an economic engine, you know, staying at hotels and Hood River and going out to restaurants and things like that before and after the trip, shopping at, at our local fly shops, ordering all their gear before before the trip and after the trip when they, you know, try out stuff that they like to use. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a big deal. And uh, yeah, I, I, my, my hope was that I could stick out my neck and it's kind of a social experiment. You know, I didn't know how people were going to react to this. And really, the positive response has been overwhelming. That's not great so much from Not so much from fellow guides, you know, and guiding peers, many of which who I feel like are, are very good friends, you know, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to reach out to all of my friends and put peer pressure on them. I want them to make their own decisions, you know, but I think... They need to really, I think, I think me making this call has forced people to think long and hard about what they're doing and how we all fit into this complicated puzzle. We start, we've already had such a hard financial time over the last two years. Oh, so I, I mean, you know, like I put everything on the line to buy these lodges, I bought two lodges on the lower Dean River. And I haven't even been to the second one because COVID hit right after we bought it. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm coming off of two full summers without a lodge season in British Columbia. And I was really counting on this to shoot season to, to get us through. This is our, this is our, our bread, you know, this is our, our breadwinner. Like this is, this is how I make a living. This is my annual income is this to shoots fall to shoots camp. So this is a big deal. This was a huge decision for me. And, uh, yeah, I, I sure hope other other guides join me, you know, because it's going to have a lot more weight coming from multiple guides 
you know, and not just on the Deschutes, you know, and not just on the Columbia Basin, because this problem, really, if you zoom way out, this steelhead disappearance is the entire North Pacific right now, mm-hmm. right? It, it so, is, yeah. man, I really hope other people that make their livings fishing for these steel wild steelhead, like, speak up right now. We need to protest. We need to make all the noise we can right now. This, if, you know, we can actually make some real positive changes right now. I mean, I'm not all doom and gloom. I don't think they're going, they're, they're just going to completely disappear in the next couple of years. I think we are seeing an extreme low. I do think they will bounce back, but if we can't get managers attention now, when it's at the, you know, what appears to be the bottom of the bottom, when can we? Now's the time. You had mentioned earlier about, you know, not being part of the problem, being part of the solution. Let's let's talk solutions here for a minute and talk business for a second. Because as business owners, we all know that there comes a time when you need to pivot. And this is one of those fantastic opportunities to pivot because we've got, I mean, fly fishing is very popular. Everyone's excited to get out. Uh, we have the, the low fish numbers, so we have to be smart with how we move around the situation. So I know I'd, I'd mentioned to you before we started rolling that um, maybe you might want to consider fishing for trout. And I know that you specifically don't want to muddy the waters right now with your messaging, but is this an option moving forward? Are there other fisheries in the region where guides can pivot and they can offer a different experience to their clientele away from oh, steelhead? Yeah, definitely. I think there's a lot of ways to be creative, you know? There's a lot of ways to do things differently and set yourself apart. I mean, you know, like I've never, I've never really done the carp thing, but I think there's a great carp fishery here. There's a great smallmouth bass fishery in the area. There's amazing trout fisheries in the area. I mean, there's a lot of other stuff to do. Yeah. Steelhead has always been the crown jewel of the region for fly fishers, especially. But, uh, yeah, I think. Man, you know what? People are always asking me, what am I going to do? And really, we've had it pretty good being fly fishing guides, being able to make a living as a guide and run these guide outfitter businesses. From my perspective, we're all going to need to make this shift. Like if we're looking at the same run or worse, it's a good chance everything's going to be closed next year, right? So I'd rather be ahead of the pack. And really, to put things in perspective, what am I going to do? I'm going to be just like every other person. I'm going to need to go get a job, right? It happens all the time. People get laid off every day. Just go get a job, figure it out. You know what? My grandpa, you know, you look at, look at what, what did your, what did your grandparents do for a living? Probably not their dream job. They probably didn't build a company based on their passion. They probably went and did some shitty work to make a living, to have a paycheck, to have some kids, to have a house to have, you know, just, a, just to live their lives. Right. So I think people have gotten really spoiled and be like, Oh, well, if I'm not guiding, I'm, I'm going to die. Give me a break. You got options where this is America, right? Like you, <laughs> I know a lot of people desperate to hire anybody right now for like 30 bucks an hour. That's more money than I've ever made guiding. David, what are you guys up to there in the background? Because the organization must be scrambling, or is this all pretty new on the radar? No, I mean this this has been uh, growing, and and we when I started in 2016, it was the first year of uh, low returns, and we gave a presentation to the Fish and Wildlife Commission in Oregon that August, 
you know, it was a low, low run and, and there, they weren't even getting a, rep- uh, a report from their staff about it. And that's been repeated several years over the past five years. Um, and so it feels we, we've been, we've been trying to trumpet this, this, uh, the need for change here. And, and I, I want to, if I could take, uh, there's two things I'd like to really bring. I'd like to just bring up really quick. And one of the things, cause, cause you'll hear this from a lot of anglers. Well, it's, it's the, it's the tribal fishing. That's what's really hitting the steelhead. And, and that is, that is, uh, true. There's the tribes are, have a, have authorization to take up to 13% of the B runs coming back this year. And that that's the upper limit under the ESA limits that they fish under. And, and they, they do try to be uh, conservative and that, but that's a big number when the number, the overall number is so low. Um, but the thing people have to realize is under the treaties, the conservation burden has to be applied to the non-tribal fisheries first. And so until there's limit greater limits on the non-tribal commercial gill nets, until there are limits on the, the, the uh, sport fishing, you, you, you aren't going to legally be able to ask the tribes to take any conservation burden. And that's why it's so important for anglers to think, okay, we need to take, we need to take our lumps here so that, so that we can reduce the impacts elsewhere. And, and let's not forget about the dams, which take in passage, take about 16% of the steelhead going up the Columbia. Um, these dam, the lower four snake dams need to come out. There needs to be a screen put on McNary Dam on a public utility turbine that's there. There's a lot of things that can happen, and it, and and we've been at it for 20 years. Those changes have to happen because right now, the, the the fishers, both the tribal and the sport and the commercial fishers, are we're arguing over the last piece of pizza, and, and that's not the way it should be. We've got to we've got to all take some responsibility and then redirect any anger. Anger shouldn't go to someone like Jeff who's saying, Hey, I'm not going to fish for these fish because I think they're in trouble. He shouldn't be the recipient of the anger. The anger needs to go to, to the managers, to the dam operators, to the elected officials. And I think that what I hope to do with my friends who are Deschutes uh, anglers is we're going to take our trip. We're going to go out there and we're going to we're going to celebrate our friendship and our and our camaraderie. We're going to celebrate the wild fish. We'll fish. We'll fish flies without a hook. We'll, we'll 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 break the the bend of the hook off and we'll and we'll fish and we'll fish for the tug. Or maybe we won't fish at all. Maybe you just go out in your waders and you stand there and celebrate these amazing animals, these amazing places. Um, we can't go away. But we should be able to go out and do that without having to actually bring a fish to hand. It's going to hurt, but we've got to do it because we've got to celebrate these ama- the amazing part of our culture. I, I agree 100%. I want to add that I'm, I am not going away. I'm going to be louder than ever because I'm going to be in service and I'm going to be making a lot of noise because that's what I know how to do best, right? And I've, I've had people reach out and suggest things like that. Well, could you, do, could you just pivot to, tr- to trout? Or could you pivot to cut your hook points off and still guide your 
clients and still run your camp, you know, and, you know, set these limits where you minimize your impact. And I think that's all really good, important stuff for people to think about how ways to minimize your impact. And I did think about that, like where we could say, Hey, it's a, we're going to impose a one fish limit. You catch your fish, you're, you're done for the day. You know, that's, that's tough when, when the person steps out and, you know, just getting light and, and just flicks a couple of poles off there and then catches a fish right away, you know, and then they got to sit out the rest of the day. Or if, you know, I think it's a tough sell for me as a guide outfitter to say, Hey guys, we're still going to run the camp, but you got to cut all your hook points off. Right. I think, I think a good portion of them would have been into that concept, but I think there would have been a, a portion that wouldn't have been into it and would have said, no, nah, I'm, I'm just not interested if I'm not fishing. And so then we're kind of running our business with gaps and holes, which our camp was booked completely solid. I want to add, and it was booked completely solid earlier than it ever has this year. So demand is higher than it has ever been for people wanting to get out and steelhead fish, but there are fewer steelhead in the rivers than ever before. So, so it's like, you know, as a business owner, I'm looking at you and you can't, you really can't operate if you're, if you're only at 75, 80% capacity, right? We, this business works at a hundred percent capacity and really it doesn't work under that. So I just had to say, no, we need to make a very loud statement here and we need to stand up. We need to put our foot down. And we need to say we are not participating in this fishery because personally, we don't believe it should be open. So with you digging your heels in like this, and I have no doubt you're going to be as loud as ever, I'm very curious as to what you're going to do if the September fishery still happens. Like if there isn't a closure, what do you what do you do you have some sort of plan? I'm already organizing a a, a lot of everybody I know with video cameras, we're gonna be at the this cold water sanctuary as it is coined at the mouth of the Deschutes. And we will be there in the dark before it gets light September 16th. We won't have fishing rods. We're going to have video cameras and we're going to be documenting what we see. And it's not going to look good to ODF and W on the worst steelhead run in history. What kind of wildlife abuse we witnessed there for these endangered species. Yeah. Wow. That is powerful. David, what are your thoughts on that? I think that it, it, again, it just points out the lack of leadership coming from the staff and uh, perhaps the commissions themselves, because this is uh, that would that's going to be it's going to be a tragedy if they don't make some changes like extending that no fishing area uh, because uh, or ending ending the tributary fisheries, given this number of fish. Uh, you know, we these fish are the ones that are coming back are the badasses. They're the best, the brightest, and we need to get them on their spawning beds without being harassed by anybody. Is there a spokesperson over there who would go on record to discuss some of this? With the agency? Yeah. Well, I think there are some, uh, there's definitely some key people, and I don't know how they, uh, you know, where the whether they send their public relations people or whether their staff, I mean, they have some really competent staff, but I think it's, it's, it's not the issue about the individuals who work for the agencies. These are, these are, you know, these are, these are competent um, and, and smart and passionate people who love to fish. They know the fish they spent they they've got technical degrees, but you have, when you get them all together, 
it, you have a group there's a there's a group mentality and sometimes the laws don't really give them enough of a foothold to take a stand themselves and so that's that's a that's a problem it really goes deeper it goes to the legislatures um and uh and and then you have that that money issue the the fact that their agency worries about their budget if not enough people buy their license and you could just look at the umqua i mean the umqua they did this the biologists there did snorkel surveys on canton and steamboat creek found that there was about 20 percent or less of the steelhead numbers he expected to see and so they closed the umqua the north umqua which is fly fish most of it's fly fishing only they closed it till December 31st uh, based on those snorkel surveys. The, we have dam counts on the Columbia, and we can't get there. Well, I don't understand that. I think you nailed it there, Dave, saying that there are really amazingly talented, super bright individuals working for Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife. But for some reason, people are too afraid to stick their necks out and say something. You know, it's like everybody's just they're they're worried about their jobs and their benefits of saying something or stepping on toes or offending someone or overstepping their boundaries when they know they are the expert on on that topic or that particular drainage. You know, and it's just I can't help but feel like in the case of the Deschutes and the Dow's district office, it's a good old boys club. Like, where is science? That's why I'd like to get one of them on the show. I have another podcast called Into the Backing where we sit down with four of us to hash out some of these very difficult subjects. And it is a fantastic way to get down to the truth and to the science and to the legislation of things. So I'm going to be watching this very carefully. And if that fishery does stay open for September, I would really like to regroup to discuss, the, to look at this again with with one of those spokespeople. Sign, sign me up, April. This fishery, there should have been some sort of decision made a month ago. This is unbelievable. One of the things that occurs to us is that with this lack of leadership, you know, we, we, we're, it's, it's been a set of extraordinary uh, events that have happened in the world with, with the COVID and any number of things. And the, the, we have been providing relief to businesses. Uh, whether they're natural disasters or not. I mean, if, if you want to really dive into it, think about the financial crisis of 2008. That was mismanagement by huge corporations, and the American taxpayer bailed those people out. Why can't we declare a disaster, even though it's sort of in some ways, it's, it's a natural disaster that we can blame partly on climate change, but it's also a management disaster. That should have been taken into account. And, and businesses, and it's not just it's not just Jeff as a as as one guide, but it's 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 really across a whole sector, um, and and it, and it affects the 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 commercial gillnetters. It affects the tribal communities. You know, the, if we need to make if we need to make sure that people have uh, the funds to to have a safe home and have their kids educated and healthcare and things like that, and they're and they're hardworking business people, there, there should be a way to bail some of those people out without putting the burden on these wild creatures that we're going to fish into the ground. And, and if people think this can't happen on the Columbia, you know, look at Vancouver Island. Are there any summer steelhead left there? Look at the Thompson river. You know, we can fish these fish into the ground and that's what we're doing. 
Dave, you 100% nailed it there. It's time to declare a fisheries disaster. So there's another option for everyone that is commercially associated with these fish. It shouldn't be left to a uh, this you know survival economic decision where it's like, well, I would love to cancel my season, but you know what? I got a friggin' mortgage payment to make, you know, and I do. I gotta I gotta worry about all that, but I had to stick my neck out, and it's like if if there was a fisheries disaster declared, we can then apply for relief and assistance. And we can actually have these state managing agencies managing based on science, not not based on economics. And and yeah, it's like if there was relief available, there's not a PPP loan available for steelhead not showing up this year, right? Declare a fisheries disaster, Oregon and Washington. That's what this is. If this isn't a fisheries disaster, I don't know what is. So it's August 25th there right now. I will have this up for August 26th. What can people who are listening today do to help gain some momentum and really start to be part of the solution? Well, I, I think I'm going to just take a quick shot and Jeff, you'll have some ideas too, but the, uh, there should be comments going into both, actually all three states, the Idaho Oregon and Washington commission. And we can provide you if, I don't know if that's something that you, we can add it, it. There's some links that we can uh, give you and, and anglers should sound, sound off on that. There's a meeting. They'll be talking, the staff will be talking about it. So we'll hear from the best and the brightest talking about the state of the runs on Friday from, from 10 to noon. Um, but there are going to be decisions that there, there may not be decisions because of just the, the, the grind of the administrative process. And so constant pressure, constantly applied, that just needs to happen. Um, and there are things that anglers can do if they, if they're going to go out to the river or if they are on the river, there's a lot of things people can do to be very careful. The best thing to do though, and in, in our opinion is not to fish. Well, and I think, I think people need to understand that governors of these respective states oversee the the departments of fish and wildlife. And if we feel like the departments of fish and wildlife are completely dropping the ball, I sure do right now. The governors need to hear about it. Definitely. From everyone. I love seeing, I love seeing, you know, the social media, you know, people pledging to hang up their waiters for the season. I love seeing people doing whatever it is. Hey, it's up to you to decide what's within your reach with it, what's within your scope, what's within your capability. But everybody needs to sacrifice something right now. And everybody needs to contribute to this if we're going to make any impact at all. David, were you going to add something? I I just, I think that the Wild Steel Coalition, Native Fish Society, Conservation Angler, uh, Trout Unlimited, uh, Wild Salmon Center, and uh, Wild Fish Conservancy all have good information on their websites and their Instagrams. There's a ton of links out there. It's been getting some great uh, coverage, or uh, uh, not great coverage. It's been getting some additional coverage as people realize the scope of this of this huge uh, disaster. Um, and so they can turn to those uh, those organizations. They're all very committed uh, for wild fish. Got it. Okay. So look, I don't want to beat a dead horse, so we'll probably wrap it up here. Is there anything that you wanted to add about this before we wrapped it up? I think I didn't have a checklist here, but I think I covered my topics. I mean, hopefully some guides call me, 
I can't believe other guides haven't come out with some sort of something statement, anything I don't, or called me to be like, how are you doing it? What's your plan? You know, like I have no idea how it's going to work out, but I, I got to believe it's going to work out. Well, so many people weigh on if it's open and it's legal, then that must be, you know, it must be for good reason. And so I'm going to continue my fishing. That's right. Yes. Everyone, everyone asks, what can they do? Nobody asks, what should they do? I might wrap it up right there. Well, listen, this platform's open for you guys. It's open to the listener as well. So if anyone listening has some sort of solution or some sort of rebuttal, I mean, I'd love to hear it. It's all part of what I see as great conversation and it opens up the door to, you know, education, learning and connecting with one another. So um, we will probably revisit this. Will you guys keep me posted? I mean, I will probably see all over the internet what happens in September, but I am here and willing <laughs> to sit down with someone. And Jeff um, and David, I'd love to give you guys some homework and try to find somebody from the agency to see if they'd be willing to sit down to offer some insight. I'd be shocked. I would love to see that, you know, I would love to see it. But I, I mean, from what I said, from as far as the staff goes, it sure seems like Everybody's afraid to stick their neck out and say something wrong or lose their job or whatever. You know, they got their they got their retirement, you know, they got their things, their their health insurance or whatever. It must be nice. Well, so, and, and I guess I would say to that um, that it's very likely. I know that the Oregon director, Kurt Melcher, who has been he's been with the agency for, you know, over 36 years and uh and i've worked with him for a long time and i i do i do he, he can speak really intelligently and clearly about these things and i think that so can his 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 chief uh columbia river staff is a guy named tucker jones who is um he's a an affable guy he can he can speak articulately about these issues and and i think the thing that i i don't like about how they handle it is that that they're so confident in what their approach is that I, I find it arrogant. It ignores what we don't know, which is so huge around steelhead uh, because they're so difficult to study. They're so difficult to monitor. They're so diverse. They're crazy fish, and that's why we love them, and that's why we love crazy steelheaders because it, it, it's just they're just they're just incredible creatures and and i i i it, it 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 makes my head explode when i hear them say they have it down that that all the non-treaty you know impacts are going to be well under two percent in the whole columbia basin with, with so many holes in in the knowledge and so you, you can definitely get good people you can get a ticklet people who will who will probably field tough questions but they probably won't answer them satisfactorily in in my opinion yeah i mean at the when we're at these levels we need to err on the side of caution right and that we need to hold their feet to the fire because we have hard data right now we have columbia we have dam counts you can't argue with those numbers that's a fact that is a hard number whereas in the winter time you know we might be saying man there are no fish in the river. I'm not catching anything, but we don't have any data. We have no idea. They have, and so it's, they have no idea what their, what the population is, what their escapement goal is, whether we're meeting the escapement or not. Speaking of Dave, as one thing we did not cover in this podcast is the fact that the Deschutes River has not met its, its escapement goal That's in the last right. 10 years. And this year, 
is way below. And it's still open? It's been Not open. only is it open, <laughs> it's, it's a, I mean, they're, they're fishing with the craziest stuff you've ever seen, April. You're not allowed to fish from a floating device, but you can use a side planer and a plug. And I find these plugs all the time with treble hooks and everything else. Like, And even when it's 72 degrees, the water, 72 degrees. So I don't know. I don't know what the conversion is there to Celsius, but it's bathtub water, you know. So you know, basically they're sixty, what sixty-five degrees lethal for a steelhead, and the Deschutes River and the Columbia Rivers. The Columbia River is getting over seventy-three degrees, and it's wide open. Just whack them and stack them, catch them all, belly up. So, so on this Deschutes River, this is the, and this is if you were, you know, if you probably recall from your conversation with Bill Baki, who talks about one of the problems. The reasons we're in this situation is because we don't have spawning criteria by river. Um, there are these broad sense escape escapement goals uh, for spawning escapement. The Deschutes has a, 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 a escapement a spawning escapement goal of six thousand two hundred fifty wild fish, and the last time that that was exceed met or exceeded was, as Jeff said, it was two thousand ten. Uh, the next year, 2011, so exactly 10 years ago, it was below that at 5,400. And uh, it's been, since 2016, it's been under 2,000 fish. And that is, you know, the reason for these low numbers, it, you know, it, it's all kinds of things. It's it's ocean conditions. It's it's a harvest in the commercial fishery. It's harvest in the tribal fishery. It's uh, it's drought. It's habitat damage. Perhaps it's a lack of water and some of the small spawning tributaries that are in the desert. But the one thing that has to be thought about is what is the impact of the fishery, and that's what this has really all been about today. And the nobody i don't think it and there's nobody that's going to listen to this who wants to be the angler who catches the last wild steelhead in the deschutes um and but but that's where we will get to because we don't collectively take responsibility and uh, and these numbers should alarm everyone they're alarming all right. Well, let's get this up and let's see how the response is. Um, I, I'll post it on my social. Please, if you've listened to the whole episode, put your comment below so that we can hear your thoughts. Like I said, it just inspires conversation and helps us understand all sides, even though right now it's seeming pretty clear that, <laughs> which side I'm <laughs> kind of sitting on. So, but anyway, we'll, uh, I'd, I'd like to hear from everybody and I'll wrap it up. I can't thank you guys enough for taking the time out of your day last minute to get Thanks for get rolling. Me. Just thank you. Um, and thanks, especially thank you for your patience with us trying to get technologically connected. That was you were you were very smooth and very helpful. <laughs> it's all just part of the gig. And Jeff, I'm, I, I, I commend you. I think that I, I will say I'm not surprised. I mean, having worked with you a little bit once upon a time, I'm not surprised that you are taking a hard stand on this and putting your neck out for what you feel is right. I, uh, yeah, I don't hold. I, I I'm very honest, and I tell it like it is. I think, or at least like I see it. Uh, I don't want to hold back. So here we are. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. 